my goodness. Can you kill those lights? Because they're just in my face. <laughs> I'm trying to do sign language, you know. I, it just ain't working. Thank you. <laughs> Still got a red one. Still got a red one shining on me. Can we get rid of the red one? <laughs> hey, listen, we like to relax here. This is not all uptight. Y'all, we like to laugh and have fun a little bit. Listen, we're in church, but that don't mean we have to be all uptight. Right? Praise the Lord. This is, listen, listen. Here is what the Bible says. The Bible says, this is the day, Brother John, that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. If we're rejoicing, it means that we ought to have smiles on our faces. It means that we ought to be in an uplifted spirit, right? This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in this day, right? And that, that's just how I am. I think every day is the day <laughs> that the Lord has made. When he blesses me to, to wake up every morning, I have a smile on my face because I know he didn't have to let me see the day. Uh, allow me, if you will, to restate what I stated last week, uh, and that is that the past few weeks in Romans has been pretty tough. Those of you that have been with us know that past few weeks have been pretty tough. As I said last week, it's been tight but it's been right. It's been difficult. It's, it, it, beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul has taken us on a dark and difficult journey through the annals of the depraved human condition. Paul has, has walked us through where we've fallen short. He's walked us through but Robert, uh, how sinful we are. That's what Paul has done over the course of the last few weeks. Paul has made quite a case for the sinfulness of mankind. Uh, he, he, he has addressed it in the, in the weeks leading up to today to the self-righteous and hypocritical Jew. Because he called them hypocrites. Y'all remember that? He called them hypocrites. And then he also, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't leave them out, and he also doesn't leave out the moral as well as the immoral pagan. He, he covers everybody. He says all of y'all are sinful before God. He has successfully argued his point, and his point being that mankind generally thinks of themselves as good. I told you last week, y'all look in the mirror sometimes. And the mirror will remind you what the truth is. And the mirror in this instance is the word of God. And Paul says that mankind generally sees himself or herself as good. But Paul says that's not true. Paul says that is not true. The truth of the matter is that every man, no matter who you are, every man, every woman, every human being is indeed a sinner before God. I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a little sobering. It's been a little, it's been a little convicting to hear Paul talk about my condition. And it, it, it should have been the same way for you. When we, when we look at what Paul has said, it, it, it should bring some humility in, on the inside of us. Uh, all the campus pastors, all of us that pastor the four campuses of Bethel, we meet every Tuesday. And we meet just to sit around and and kick, kick around some thoughts about the upcoming passage. What are, what, are, what are our individual thoughts? We don't write each other's sermon. In fact, all four sermons are going to sound totally different. But we just sit around and we talk about what, what did you see? What, what is it that stands out to you? And for the past few weeks, the mood in the room has been really stiff 
and serious. Because believe it or not, it is very difficult to prepare to preach bad news for so many weeks in a row. It's taxing on the preacher. You think it's bad for you. It's taxing on the preacher to sit down and contemplate. I told you before, it hits us. It hits me before it gets to you. So I promise you before I even get here, I'm already feeling the uppercuts and the jabs. I'm already feeling Paul hitting me everywhere and grabbing me and and shaking me every which way but loose. I'm already dealing with it. And so in the room, in the pastor's meetings on Tuesday, it's been kind of difficult. It's been kind of solemn. It's been kind of stiff. But this past week, the mood lightened up. It was a little, it it was jovial. There was excitement in the room because just like you, you think you've been waiting to get to Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 31. We've been waiting much worse than you have. We've been excited and looking forward to today. And so this past Tuesday, there was jokes, everybody was laughing, there was smiles, there was, no, not, there was not much seriousness because everybody was excited that we were going to finally have a chance to share some good news from Romans. It's been a while, I mean we did it a little while back like in 117, but it's been a while, it's been a few weeks so it's been difficult over the last few weeks uh, and it's here in three 21. This is the reason why the spirit was lifted. This is the reason why the hearts were lightened. This is the reason why it was jovial and excitement uh, in the room, uh, because it's here where we find in 321 through 31, a treasure trove of uplifting theological truth. Uplifting. We've had, we've had theological truth all throughout Romans, but now we get to a treasure trove of uplifting theological truth. This passage is indeed monumental for the Christian faith. So much so that Martin Luther calls verses 21 through 26 the marrow of theology. Luther says this gets to the very heart of theology, the heart of the matter. It is what is central to the Christian life. It's also been described as the most important single paragraph ever written in history. As we then approach this long-awaited section of Romans, my contention is that we don't have to go far at all in this passage to find relief. We don't have to go far at all. I believe the darkness begins to lift in the first two words of verse 21. I believe it's there that the darkness begins to lift. I believe we don't have to go past those first two words. Those first two words are, but now. That's some good news. But now is good news. In fact, it's such good news that I decided to use that as my title today. But now. That's what I'm going to preach about today. But now for the next uh, hour and a half. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) I told you you got to laugh (laughs) sometimes. But now, but now is what I thought would be an appropriate title for this message. If you've been with us since 118, and most of you have been with us since 118 all the way through 320, you'll agree with me when I say that but now is a reason to celebrate. 
because we've been beat down. <laughs> we've been beat down for the last few weeks, but, but now, right? It, 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 but now is a reason to celebrate, celebrate most of the other sections that start in one, after 117 begin with words or phrases that compel the reader to look back and ponder the disheartening news shared previously by the Apostle Paul. So, for instance, in 118, which begins that section, the word for starts that section. So that means you look back at what, it, at what Paul just said. Uh, in 2-1, the word therefore starts that section, which means in order to figure out what's going on, you got to look back at what Paul just finished talking about because there's a therefore there. And then in 3-1, he starts that section with the word then, which is very similar to the word therefore. And 4, he says, look back at what I just wrote, right? And then in 3-9, the, the start of that section, he begins that section with the question, what then? And in order to figure out what he's talking about when he said, when he asked the question, what then, you go to, got to go back and read what he just wrote. So he starts all of these sections with these words of phrases that causes us to look back. The but now of 321 also asks the reader to look back. But unlike the others, it doesn't leave them or us there. It doesn't leave. It causes us to look back. The word but causes us to look back to see what the but is there for. But it does not leave us there uh, as it also signals the dawning of a new day. The dawning of a new day. The conjunction but signifies that a shift is about to happen. The but signifies a shift and the now signifies when the shift is going to happen. There's a but and a, and a now, and it says that, that something is happening. With this simple two-word phrase, Paul makes what is a seismic shift from law to grace. He makes a leap from, from, from the bondage of the law to the love of God's grace. From the difficulty of adhering to the law to the sweetness of God's amazing grace. That phrase, but now, says, I'm leaving the discussion about the bondage. I'm now beginning to talk about God's amazing grace. Because we've, we've, we've departed now from the dispensation of the law, and we find ourselves in 321 entering into, as Paul writes, the dispensation of God's grace. And I don't know about you, but to me, God's grace. I agree with John Newton. I agree with what John Newton wrote when he said, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, he says, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see through many dangers, toils, and snares. I've already come. It was grace. It was grace. It was grace. Paul says, but now. That's where we are. Uh, it's a shift 
from law to grace. Uh, let me read it for you and, and see if you can see uh, the beauty of what Paul writes in 321 through 31. 321 starts this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes our boasting is the question. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one, one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is Paul making this leap, this shift from law to grace. In this passage, we find the truths about the righteousness Paul introduces us to in 117. You know, that's the first place he talks about this righteousness. He, he talks about it in 117. Then we don't get anything else about it until now. But now we get the truths. The description, if you will, of what this righteousness is that he introduced us to in 117. And so to do it, I think he, he breaks it down in several ways. One of the things I think he says is this in 21 through 26. I think he, he shows us how the righteousness of God was manifested. In 21 through 26, this is what I think he does. How the God, righteousness of God was manifested. And he says this, first way it was manifested is apart from the law, apart from the law. But before we talk about the law, let's talk about righteousness. What, what exactly is righteousness? It's defined as being as one should be before God. That, that's what righteousness is, righteousness is, being as one should be before God. And none of us, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm going to say this anyway, none of us can do that on our own. All of us need divine intervention to stand before God as we ought to be. Because if we stand alone, none of us will appear before him as we really ought to appear. All of us are marred. All of us are broken. All of us are deep in sin. But, but, so we can't stand before him as we ought to be all alone. Righteousness is that. When we are able to stand before him as we really ought to be, then we're righteous. Paul says that this standing is in no way connected to, nor is it achieved from the adherence to the Mosaic law. 
You have to understand the audience. The audience that he was writing to thought that that was the case. That they could be righteous, declared righteous, be righteous, uh, based on them keeping the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. You know, the Ten Commandments and all those other laws that are listed in the Old Testament. They thought that that would justify them. Paul reminds them, and he reminds us today, that we can't do it that way. It's apart from this law. But it was, though, he says in the, in the text, declared. It was declared and predicted by the law. In verse 21, he says it. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it what is apart from it, but they bear witness to it. So it, what he's saying is the law, when he says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul says, although it happens apart from the law, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures bear witness. They reveal it. They, they give a foreshadow of what uh, righteousness will look like. They bear witness to it. They predicted it. Uh, the way uh, to righteousness was always there. They simply missed it. It was always in their face. It was always uh, before them. They simply missed it. It was always uh, in the scriptures. It was always taught through the prophets, the true way to righteousness. They simply missed it. You know prophets like Isaiah who proclaims it in that all-famous suffering servant passage of, of chapter 53 when Isaiah says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, wo- he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. But by, he talking about Jesus, by his stripes, hundreds of years before Jesus would come, he gives a glimpse and he predicts how righteousness would come. He says, by his stripes. We are healed. We've been made righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus' stripes, because of his pain. It's there. They just missed it. Uh, So they bear witness to it. And then not only is it apart from the law, but he says in 22 that it is through faith. That's how we get it. It's apart. It's not connected to the law. It's it's, It's not because of that, but it's through faith. It's how we get it. God allows men to be made righteous by them placing their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. You know, all of us have a measure of faith. Did you know that? All of us have faith. Even if we refuse to admit it, even if we don't claim to be believers in Jesus, all of us still have faith. I've told you before that it takes faith to get on an airplane. You don't know the pilot. You don't know what he did last night. You don't know nothing about it. You don't know if he's drunk, because there's been a lot of them been drunk lately. <laughs> I don't know drunk pilot flying me. Listen, all of us have faith. Here's what faith, what true faith is. True faith is defined or determined by the object in which one places their faith. And I don't know about you, but even on a plane with a drunk pilot, my faith ain't in him. Because even if it goes down, my hope is built on nothing less. And Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. My faith 
is in Jesus. And Paul says the only way to claim the righteousness of God is that your faith has to be in the faithfulness of Jesus. Listen, it's all about what he did. And it's nothing about who we are. You can't do anything to earn it. It's about placing your faith in his faithfulness. He was faithful. Isaiah reminded us he was faithful. And Paul reminds us in in Philippians, even to the point of death, not just death, but Paul says the death of the cross. He was obedient, Paul says in Philippians 2, even to death, not just a normal death, but the excruciating and painful death death of the cross, and because of that, I've decided to place all of my faith in him. I don't know how much faith I have. I don't even know if you can measure it, right? I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into details of how much faith do you have, how much faith. I don't know about all that. All I know is I trust Jesus. All right. Amen. Amen. And Jesus says if you have faith, size of a grain of a mustard seed, I don't know what that looks like. I've never seen a mustard seed. I don't know. And I don't know if mine is bigger than that or smaller than that. All I know is that I trust Jesus. Paul says this righteousness comes through faith. But not only that, he says it is to all. It, 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 it is to all. Now, nobody is excluded from the opportunity to receive this righteousness. And that's because all of us need it. All of us need the righteousness of Jesus, although all of us don't recognize the need for the righteousness of Jesus. Because Paul says in 323, for all, not some. See, I know you sitting there looking at me right now saying, he ain't talking about me. I, that, that, I don't qualify. I don't fit that description. I know. I hear you. I hear you You're saying it to yourself, but I can hear you. I can see it on your face. You're saying, yeah, that this sermon is not for me. Well, Paul says in 323 that all, even you, even me, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if you back up in the second part of 22, he says that it is for all. There is no distinction, no partiality. God is not a respecter of persons. He makes his righteousness available to the to the dirtiest of sinners. Me being chief. You being chief. Don't look. Don't, don't, don't be talking about what, what did he do? Back up in Romans and you'll find out those Pharisees, those Jews were saying the same thing. What did they do? What did those, what did those sinful pagans do, right? Paul said, who are you talking about? You did, you're doing the same stuff. Hypocrite. That's what Paul, I'm not talking to you. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not calling you that. I'm just telling you what the scripture said. So, so Jesus, God says, Paul, through Paul, he says that it is available to not just some. And the first step in recognizing that is to recognize that all of us need it. All of us need the righteousness that only Jesus can provide. All of us. Is for, and then he says this. How do we get it? If it's through faith, it's by grace. In verse 24, he says, it is by, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I need to talk about that for a few minutes. This word justify, what does it mean? It means to declare one not guilty or to make one as he ought to be, to justify. And then this word redemption, what does it mean? It means to set at liberty after the payment of a ransom or a price. To redeem means to pay a price, right? To redeem means to do that, to rescue one from their current condition. God, God applied the price that Jesus paid, had paid on the cross to our account and declared us righteous. He thereby freed us from the condemnation and the consequences of sin. God gave us his righteousness even when we did not deserve to receive it. He gave it to us anyway. He gave it to us even though we could never, ever, never, never, ever, never, ever pay him back. You can't pay him back. You can't pay him back. You, you, you don't have enough. You can't repay him. And so he knew that. He knew that you didn't have enough. He knew that you were morally bankrupt. He knew that you, did, that you didn't have enough to pay the debt. He knew that, but he gave it to us anyway. He gave it without a single cause or without strings attached. That's grace. See, see, see we don't really know how to extend grace. Because when I do something for you, Really deep. I may not say it. <laughs> there y'all go looking at me again. You do the same thing. Don't be looking at me judgmental. When, when I do something for you or give you something really on the inside, I'm kind of, kind of, sort of, John, looking for something in return. <laughs> kind of, sort of. You, you do the same thing, right? You, you, do, you, you, you act like it's an act of kindness, but really, you at least wanna, want somebody to say thank you. You at least, if you give somebody some money, and, and you at least want them to attempt to pay you back. That's the quickest way to lose friends and family. <laughs> because they'll say, oh, don't worry about it. Just whenever you can. Don't worry about it, child. Just pay me back when you can. But that person going to get mad at you. If they ain't heard from you in a while. How, can, what? Can you imagine? The, the, the nerve. Don't come around me knowing they owe me money. <laughs> Y'all say it? You say it? How you going to come around me? You, you know you owe and you ain't paid me back. God is not like that. He knew from the beginning that you didn't have enough to satisfy the debt. And he extended his amazing grace anyhow. That's grace. So it comes by grace, but then watch this, it's in accordance with his justice. He does not, he does not uh, uh, violate his justice in doing this. Because, watch this, God would not be God if he allowed sin to go unpaid for. You say, well, why can't he just ignore it? Why did there have to be a price paid? Because it would violate the very character of God if he allowed sin to just go without, Brother Sam, there being a price paid. And so he does 
this. He extends his righteousness in accordance with his justice that he lays out in the Old Testament. Look at what it says in 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Boy, there's a lot there. I don't know if we're going to get time, have time, but we're going to try. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He does it without violating and staying in accordance with his justice. He has to punish sin. So this word propitiation, let's talk about it real quick. What does it mean? It means satisfaction. Or appeasement. It means to satisfy or to appease something that needs those things. Propitiation is the act of God motivated by his immense love, whereby he accepts the blood of Christ as the complete and satisfying sacrifice for all human sin, thus establishing a means of reconciliation between him and us. That's what propitiation looks like. It's what Jesus did. Uh, and so the text says, by his blood, doesn't it? By his blood. That, that, that means that's how, it, that's how it happened. It's a reference to the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16. And by the way, the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people is coming up this week. It's Tuesday and Wednesday or Wednesday and Thursday. It happens. It's called Yom Kippur. The, the, the genesis, the, the, the foundation of the reason why they celebrate that and recognize that every year is found in Le- starting in Leviticus 16. And in Leviticus 16, if you're familiar with it, if you go back and read it, you know that in Leviticus 16, the priest once a year was called to go and to offer a sacrifice for the people. And the priest would go to the, to the tabernacle and the people would bring uh, to, the, to the tabernacle goats and bulls. And when the priest went into the tabernacle, uh, before he went in, the people brought these various animals. But the, the two things they brought, two goats. Two goats were brought, and as the two goats were brought, they cast lots because one of them was going to have to die, and one was going to live. And so outside the tabernacle, they cast lots, but which one would live, which one would die? The one that lost, they slaughtered it outside of the tabernacle, and the priest would take the blood from the slaughtered goat and take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it on what's called the mercy seat. And when he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, the mercy seat was a lid for the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments where they rested. And he sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat and around the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. The law was inside of the Ark. Watch this picture. He sprinkles blood on the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant, which had the law in it. So, and around it, you know what he did? He covered the law with the blood. He covers the law with the blood. Then, after covering the law and the sins of the people with the blood inside the Holy of Holies, he would come out and that goat that was still living, he'd come out and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat that was still living. And then he would cast it out into the wilderness. This represented the sins of all the people. 
and he laid the sins of all the people on the head of the goat and cast it out into the wilderness, never to be heard from or seen again. That's what God does to our sins. That's where we get the, the word scapegoat from. That was the scapegoat of the Old Testament. He, he cast him out, never to be heard from a scene again. And Paul references this here in Romans chapter 3 when he said it was by the blood, the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was all the blood. It reaches, I feel like preaching, to the highest mountain, and it flows to the lowest valley. Oh, the blood that gives me strength. Boy, I thought y'all were going to help me today. From day to day, it will never lose its power. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness. So Paul says, it's by his blood. And then we move on to almost the last section of this text, verse 27. There's just one point in verse 27 that I want to make, and it's this. All the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to God. Here's what he says. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. Here's what Paul essentially is saying. This is what the text says to me. All the glory goes to God. You know what that means? I can't take any credit. I have no room to brag or boast about anything. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are we saved through faith, that not of your works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift. Of God. We have no space to brag about how good we've been. We can't, but all the glory. Listen, if anybody, I'm not telling you to do this, but this is what I do. This is what God has shown. Anybody ever gives me any kind of compliment, I don't care what it is, I always say, to God be the glory. Because I know I'm not worthy. So just know that most of the time, if you say anything to me about anything that's a compliment, that's going to be my response. Because, Chris, I believe that with all my heart. It has nothing to do with who I am. It's all about, Brother Robert, who God is and what God has meant to me in my life. All the glory, the honor, go to him. The minute you start talking about, look at what I did. I've always told you the worst thing you can do is start believing your own press. That's a recipe for disaster. You, you, if you want to, you can start believing all those kind and nice and sweet things people say about you. Those are going to be the very ones. I've learned this the hard way. <laughs> Amen. Be the very ones that are cut, cut the rug from under you. You, you have to remain humble. And always say, even if you don't say it out loud, to God be the glory. The minute you start talking about, man, I got it going on. <laughs> you know, God says, okay, let me bring you down a few notches. Always remind yourself all the glory goes to God. And then to end this 
to end this passage, Paul uses this illustration uh, that goes from between faith and law. He pits faith against law in 28 through 31. Faith versus law. Paul here revisits the point he makes in 21. That point being a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the law. He revisits it here, and he uses some words in 29 and 30 that say again that it's available to all because in 29 and 30, he uses only and also. That means that it, and look at what he says in 29 and 30, or, or is God the God of the Jews only? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. And then he says, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Also a rhetorical question because the answer is yes, right? And so he says, again, it's available to all. God is the God of the Gentiles and the Jews. Justification for all men must come apart from the law, which was given solely to the Jews. But it's available to all. And then in 31, he ends the same way he started in 22. He ends with faith. He starts with faith. He ends with faith. Faith doesn't nullify the law. Rather, it upholds the law of God. Our salvation does not do away with the law. Instead, our salvation establishes or fixes in place the law of God. The, law, the Lord used the law to teach us that we were sinners. He used the law to show us that we were doomed without him. He used the law to establish our need. Jesus met and fulfilled our need. The law shows us our need. Jesus fulfills our need. Didn't he do it? Didn't he fulfill our need? It was looking bad, wasn't it? But now, Jesus has fulfilled our need. Right? But now, story is told. Can I share a story with you? Can I come down here and share it with you? Story is told of an elderly poor man who had a lifelong dream. His lifelong dream was to someday take a cruise. Anybody like cruising? <laughs> His lifelong dream. I tried to talk my daddy into going on. He said, nah, there's too much water out there. You'll have fun. Now, this man's lifelong dream was to take a cruise. He was poor, though, Brother Sam, and he didn't have the money to afford it. He couldn't afford it. It was his dream, but he couldn't afford to go. So a stranger gets the word that this man uh, has this desire to go on a cruise, and this stranger, who he didn't even know, pays for his ticket to go on a cruise. He gets the news that he has this cruise paid for, but he still realizes that he's a man of not many means. And so as he prepares to take his trip, he begins to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Because he feels like once I get on the cruise, this is a week-long cruise, I'm not going to be able to afford the food. So I'm taking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with me so that I can have something to eat. So he gets on the ship with all his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and he's eating these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. But while he's eating them, Brother Robert, he's watching these folks eat all this fine food. And he gets bothered by that, and he said, you know, I don't have much money. But one day, before I get off this ship, I'm going to splurge a little bit, and I'm going to spend some money. And have me one of those fine meals. Not only that, but everybody keep talking about these shows they're going to every night. And how wonderful it is. I wish I could afford it. One day, before I get off this ship, I'm going to pay and I'm going to splurge and I'm going to go to one of these shows. So he decides one day before the, before the cruise ends to ask and inquire. 
about the cost of the food and the entertainment. And to his shock, somebody that's been on a cruise ought to see where I'm going with this. To his shock, to his shock and surprise, the person responds, uh, sir, your cruise is all inclusive. Everything on the ship is already covered. He's been on the ship all this time and he's been forsaking, having the things that he wanted, thinking that he had to pay for it. He realizes then that his ticket was paid by somebody he didn't even know and his ticket included an all-inclusive experience on the ship. Everything was included and he didn't even pay for it. Somebody ought to help me preach. It's a picture, Brother Warren, of the gospel. Jesus paid our ticket. It wasn't for a cruise. It was for redemption. He paid our crew, our, our ticket. And watch this. Everything is included in the price of the ticket. Yeah, 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 everything. Uh, uh, redemption is in the price of the ticket. Everlasting life is in the price of the ticket. Joy. Y'all going to make me lose my voice. Y'all working me too hard. It's in the price of the ticket. Somebody need to help me. Love is in the price of the ticket. Forgiveness, we talked about it earlier, is in the, it's included in the gospel. All right, all right. Yes, sir. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But I'm not able to repay it. And he doesn't want me to. All he wants me to do is express my faith in him. He says, Stephanie, he says, everything is included in the ticket. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for 21 through 31 that allows us to see the good news of the gospel. We praise you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, before we go, I'd like to extend an invitation. To those, those that we have communion as well, so after this we'll do that. Uh, those that may be here that want to know Jesus. Never met him. You never you heard you heard you hear about him. You were at City Fest last night and you said you were gonna do it, but you didn't. But you said I'm gonna go to church in the morning, maybe I'll do it there. Well, this is your chance. Jesus has paid it all. All inclusive. Would you raise your hand if you're that person and you don't know Jesus and you'd like to do it today? Get that matter settled today? Anybody? All right. Then if you've been coming. If you'd like to be a member of Bethel Hope, we want to give you that opportunity as well. Would you raise your hand if you want to become a member, and we'll tell you how to get that done. Anybody? 